everybody. Welcome to GeoTrek. We have an exciting episode today where we're interviewing Melissa Moon. She's been storm chasing since 2003. She studied meteorology at the University of Oklahoma, where she graduated with honors and worked for the Cooperative Institute for Mesoscale Meteorological Studies at NSSL and also the National Climatic Data Center. She then took a career break to stay home with family, and she's now working in the insurance industry, helping restore the lives of storm victims and providing catastrophe weather guidance when needed. Melissa, thank you so much for taking time and coming on GeoTrack. Thanks for having me. It's really exciting to talk to you because of your passion for extreme weather and really severe weather. How long have you been interested in severe weather? I have been interested in severe weather since I was probably about four or five years old. Um, my dad actually was pretty interested in it growing up. He was a hot air balloon pilot. And, you know, whenever the weather was doing something, he'd always draw attention to it. And then I also like to watch anyone who lives in the Dallas area will remember Harold Taft. He was a meteorologist on TV back in the 80s. And um, I really liked watching him on TV. And that kind of got me interested in weather as well. Uh, Melissa, that's fascinating. So really, from a young age, you were pretty um, excited about the weather. Oh, for sure. And definitely growing up in Texas, you're going to see quite a bit of it. Yeah. So, Melissa, you mentioned uh, Dallas. So did you grow up in the DFW Metroplex, kind of uh, northeast Texas there? Where, where did you originally grow up? Um, so I grew up in Fort Worth, just kind of northwest of town. Oh, that's great. So you saw a lot of severe, severe weather. Obviously, that part of the country is uh, sort of getting towards Tornado Alley and a lot of severe thunderstorms as well. Yeah. So when I was about seven years old, I saw my first tornado. My dad actually drove me up to the top of the hill and there was one passing kind of northwest of where we were. And that was the first time I'd ever seen one of those. I was also, in 1995, I was at the Mayfest, Mayfest Outdoor Festival when it was pummeled with softball-sized hail. Wow, so there are a couple big events. So going back to when you were seven and you saw that first tornado, were you scared about it? Were you more fascinated? Do you remember any of the emotions attached with that event? Um, no, I was fascinated by it. I knew it wasn't heading towards me because I could see which way it was moving. I just thought it was really cool to to see one in person because I had watched all those, you know, documentaries on TV, the Nova specials and all that about weather and storm chasing and all that stuff. And I was already pretty intrigued by it. Oh, that's interesting. So then you grew up, you know, you're an adolescent, you're thinking about college. Were you thinking all the way that you wanted to do something professionally long-term in the weather industry? Or was it more of like a hobby or an interest when you were, say, in your teen years? Yeah, I would say after the whole Mayfest experience, I just thought it was so cool that the atmosphere could produce these giant softballs coming out of the sky. And I knew that I wanted to study weather I did kind of go through a little phase when I was in high school where I really wasn't sure 100% if that's what I was going to do, but I just kept coming back to it. And that's ultimately what I decided to go and study. That's interesting. And so you, you know, you studied meteorology, you were there at the University of Oklahoma, and also you uh, at some point got into storm chasing. I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. I mean, when, when were the first times that you actually went out like away from where you live to, uh, to chase storms? Um, so I wasn't allowed to do it in high school. So it would have been my freshman year of college. I was in Oklahoma at the time, because that's where I was going to school. And I had met some, you know, friends 
who had already been doing it at the university and I would go out with them. We went to Texas. Actually, that was the year that Moore got hit. There's been a few times that Moore's been hit, but that's the second time they've been hit really bad. The May 8th, 2003. For that one, we just had to drive up the road, but we got really close to it. Probably a little bit too close because we were new chasers. Like we were all pretty inexperienced, but it was a pretty, uh, I guess, fascinating thing to see, even though... Yeah, it, even though, you know, it was kind of sad to see it destroy the town. Yeah, Melissa, so when you think to that 2003 more tornado, what were you using for guidance? Were you doing your own forecast? Were you using guidance from other forecasters on where these tornadoes may set up? Well, I mean, we had a pretty good idea of, it was me and a group of people. And, you know, we knew that there was going to be something going on. And we were watching the radar. We were, we were at the school. And we saw that there was a storm headed for more. So we just kind of drove up there and used our eyeballs to determine where we were going to go to intercept it. That was back before um, anyone had cell phones with, with radar data on it. So we just kind of had to just keep a visual on the storm to know where to go. Yeah, that's true. Pre-smartphone, pre really, you kind of had to get your forecast and then maybe you had a NOAA weather radio or, or the AM, FM radio. But in a sense, we didn't have those uh, visuals that we do today. Yeah, that's exactly right. And we did have the weather radio going in the car. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, Melissa, you know, it's really interesting when I think of your typical storm chaser, I often picture um, teenagers through young adults that are usually uh, men, and you don't fit that description. You're female, and also you're a mom. I love that you break the mold on that. I think that's exciting, and I'd you know, love to see more female storm chasers out there. Has your storm chasing experience been different, do you think, as a female, or really no difference at all? I would say it's a bit different. I mean, because I'm a mom, I can't... There's some people out there, some, some guys especially, you know, they may have supportive wives or they may have, you know, they may not have family or anything like that. They're able to go out for days and days. They might have a flexible job that they can take any time off they want. For me, you know, I have to have a stable job, like, because I'm a single mom. I can't always go out when I want to um, because, you know, I have to figure out childcare for my kids, things like that. There's also some risks that I'm, you know, probably wouldn't take as a female that I might as a male. For example, I know some of my friends, they sleep in their car to save on hotel costs. I don't know that I would do that by myself because I'm a female. Right, but, like just um, out there on some road by yourself sleeping alone. Yeah, yeah that, that makes sense. In a random parking lot. Yeah, just things like that. I mean, there's certain risks I won't take as far as that goes. But I mean, it's when, I'm, when I am able to get out there and chase, you know, I'm, I'm right in there with the guys as far as like getting to the target and positioning and all that stuff. Oh, that's great. So, Melissa, do you typically more chase by yourself or more chase with teams, or does it just depend, like, case by case? Um, I've done both. I've chased on my own, and actually, uh, yeah, and I prefer to chase with a partner. I just feel like it's safer. You know, that way someone can be focusing on driving and one person can be focusing on navigating what's on the radar. So that would be what I prefer, but I have done it on my own. Like, if I can't find someone who's free to go that day, I'll just go myself. That's interesting. So what have you learned about severe weather on your chases from actually getting out there in the field, seeing these uh, severe storms? What have you learned about severe weather uh, from being out there in the field? You know, one thing, just really understanding how storms work, getting to see them doing their thing and then simultaneously seeing what they're doing, you know, in person as opposed to what you're seeing on the radar. It almost helps you understand what's going on, like when you're not there. So like, you know, if I'm watching a severe weather event just on radar, 
because I've been out there and I've seen what storms tend to do with certain radar graphs, you know, I can better understand what's probably going on there, even though I'm not there. So it, you know, it helps me be a better now caster. Plus two, when you're chasing, you know, you make a forecast and you come up with a plan on where you think you're going to go and you might make a really good forecast and everything goes great and you end up seeing a bunch of really cool stuff, but sometimes you make a forecast and your forecast doesn't pan out the way you thought it would. Maybe you picked the wrong spot. You know, maybe storms didn't fire that day. A lot of times that'll happen along the dry line if the um, cap is too strong. That's basically the stable layer that's above the surface that prevents all the warm air right at the surface from instantly rising. Usually you have to have the cap erode for, for all that warm air to get up and to create a thunderstorm. But yeah, so anyway, getting back to what I was saying, you know, when you're making a forecast to chase and then you see how the day pans out, it helps you become a better forecaster. When you're actually, when you're planning out of chase, how much of this is just you're looking at the meteorology and how much of is it, is it like you're looking at road options and like, well, if I put myself here and I'm wrong, there, there aren't that many, you know, different roads to take versus if I go over here and I'm wrong, I, I have more road options. Um, how does that play out in the mindset and planning of a storm chaser? I mostly look at the meteorology to pick my target. Um, I mean, I do think of road options. For example, if I know it's going to be a Red River chase um, on the Oklahoma-Texas border, there are some areas where your river crossings are going to be limited. So I'll kind of keep that in the back of my mind. And then once a storm fires and I know exactly where it's going to be and I'm going after it, that's when I really start thinking about the road options. And I'm like, okay, you know, should I try to cross the river now or should I go down to the next town? and try to cross, you know, depending on which way the storm is moving. You also have to think about the storm motion because sometimes they start out moving northeast and then they either turn to the right um, or sometimes they split and turn to the right. Like the, the right split will just go more straight. And I've actually seen that happen before where someone maybe didn't think about the road options or they were surprised by the storm changing motion. And I've seen chasers lose their windshields before. I know for me one time, I did get some hail in my car um, because I took a turn down a road and I wasn't paying attention to the fact that the road dead ended to a canyon and then I didn't have anywhere else to go and I kind of got caught in the hook of the storm. Oh, so it's happened to me too. Yeah. Well, I, um, ideally, where would you want to set up in, in the best case scenario, where would you want to set up in relation to the storm, like it, in relation to its position and its motion? Definitely kind of the traditional way to set up is, and this is, kind of like an older idea the general thinking was you want to set up kind of to the southeast of the storm that way you're out of the way like if it's moving northeast or if it's moving due east you're going to be safe like you're not going to be in the path of a tornado sometimes you can get the best shots from the backside of a storm um, there was a storm back in april this past spring it was up near vernon texas and that storm um, the people who were kind of on the backside they got a shot of a white tornado just because of where they were. I was chasing that day and I was a bit more ahead of the storm and I got a good shot too, but they got the money shot of the day just because of where they were. So really, I mean, you can kind of pick your poison if, as long as you have radar, but if you want to be really safe, I generally recommend, um, especially for newer chasers, to stay southeast of the storm. 
That makes sense. Melissa, what are you looking for when, you are, when you're out in the field? Is it pictures? Is it videos? Is it, uh, you know, personal understanding of the weather? Is it documenting this stuff so that you can help um, others forecast or understand meteorology better? Uh, on your ideal days out there, what are you really looking for when you're out there in the field? For me, it's just, I, I, I stand there in awe of it. And lately, I've been trying to get good photos. I recently bought a DSLR. So I've never had one before. I've chased for a really long time, but I've just never had a fancy camera or anything. So yeah, and I, at the moment, I don't have a great video camera. I know there's a lot of people that try to get really good video. Um, that's going to be something I probably purchase for next spring and try to get better at just getting good footage. But, you know, and I know there's also chasers out there who try to gather data, like they have probes and things like that. I would love to be involved with something like that. Yeah, so another question when you've been out there in the field, has severe weather ever done something that's really surprised you or caught you off guard? Yeah, I mean, sometimes you see setups where you think there's going to be a lot of tornadoes and then it ends up being a complete bust, kind of like I was talking about earlier. Where, And then there's been other days where you don't think you're going to see much and then you end up seeing something great. Um, and then you always have certain events that happen. Some tornadoes, you know, Know, that one that I wasn't chasing that day, but I could just think off the top of my head, probably the most famous example would be the El Reno tornado. That one was the one in Oklahoma that um, got to be like two and a half miles wide and caught a lot of chasers off guard and actually unfortunately killed a couple chasers. So, I mean, I, I was watching, I wasn't there that day, but I was watching it as it unfolded. Mother Nature is always full of surprises. You never completely know what you're going to get. That's a good point. Even some of the you know, best trained and best experienced tracers sometimes can find that mother nature unfolding things a little bit differently than they expected even when they're out there in the field. Yeah, and the, and the chasers that passed away that day, they were very experienced. They were some of the ones that people looked up to. They had just made a turn down a wrong road and they were turning around to get away from it and it was, it was too late. Well, so you mentioned some of these chasers that will go out and collect data. Any insights on the kind of information that they're collecting out there? Well, I, I have a friend, um, couple friends, they, they have probes that they set on the ground, kind of similar to what Tim Samaras did um, years ago. But, you know, they take pressure readings and such like that. And they actually got a direct hit up and believe it was in Oklahoma. Um, I know that there's that group and then there's a few other groups. I know there's people that drive mobile radars and they'll try to get really close to the storm and scan it so that they can get rapid radar imagery of it to study for research. I know that um, Reed Timmer has, I think he launched a rocket into a storm to collect some data, if I'm not mistaken. I think I've seen that where he tried to get the rocket, I think it had a parachute system and he was trying to get it in the inflow yes. to get it you know, caught up, so. When I was a lot younger, when I was working at NSSL um, for Sims, I actually did participate in an experiment that they did. It was actually studying electromagnetic fields for lightning. And um, myself and a team of other people led by a couple of the scientists at the lab, uh, we launched a balloon with a, it was like a giant weather balloon with an electromagnetic sensor into several storms in Oklahoma. Oh, wow. That's that really interesting. Before, so it was many oh, years ago for me, but that was actually a really cool experiment to be a part of. And if I'm not mistaken, they got some really good data. Yeah. You, you know, where you grew up and then where you went to school, you were really in prime chasing country to get out and do field work on all kinds of different experiments in that in that region. I had a question too. I've done hurricane chasing. Tornado chasing looks very different and it seems like from videos I've seen uh, some of these back roads will get crowded with chasers. In that element when there's a lot of scientists, a lot of field chasers out there, 
Um, what does that feel like? Is there a sense of camaraderie or is there a little bit more like territorial aggressive nature or does it just depend on the chase? It really depends. Um, the worst I've seen was a traffic backup, like standstill. And it was because someone had had an accident. But yeah, I find that if it gets too congested, you just start seeing people maybe forget that there are certain laws when it comes to driving on the road. I think some people do have an idea in their head that they're more entitled to be in a certain time more than other people. And they start driving that way and it can put people in danger. But I do know there is also a lot of self-policing in the chaser community. So like if someone's doing that, someone else will get it on their dash cam and they will call that person out for doing that. Because, I mean, it's not something that generally people want just for people to drive unsafely. At the same time, you know, as long as it's not too crazy, it is nice to run into your friends out there. Like if you're pulled off on the side of the road watching a tornado and then when you haven't seen in three years, it's nice to see them. And then you can kind of enjoy that moment together. Yeah, it seems like with tornado chases and uh, severe storm chasing, you have this moment in time, right? Where there's like the perfect setting for pictures, video, Picture, data, video collection. data collection. I feel like that's a little bit different than hurricane chasing where you may have hundreds of miles of coastline that are impacted over a, a long duration event. It seems like with tornado chasing, you have that moment in time. So from what I've seen in videos and you could confirm this, does it sometimes feel like everyone's racing to get to that, that special place at that special time? Oh, it can definitely feel like that. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. So, so I could, I could maybe understand why people at least have the temptation to drive a little faster than they should or do whatever, because you, you maybe have a, a short window to get where you need to get. Right. And I think that's exactly why some people do. They want to get the best video. Um, some of them sell their videos to media outlets and they want to have the best footage. They're competing against other people for video sales and that can definitely motivate someone to drive a certain way. Yeah, that's interesting. It seems very different to me than hurricane chases. Hurricane chases are so different. The The rush with a hurricane chase is getting to where you need to go about a day before the storm hits because of evacuations and restrictions. And so you're often getting to this place maybe 24 hours before the storm makes landfall. And then it, you kind of have this day where you're just there reading books and, and stuff like that. But it's, it's very different. And yeah. then often I think the chasers are really spread out as well. Yeah, for sure. That's really interesting. So how has your perception of severe weather, uh, severe thunderstorms, hail, tornadoes, how has that changed from um, both your chasing and just your professional career as well? I don't know if it necessarily changed my perception of risk because, you know, I've seen a lot, but even before I chased, I've seen plenty of tornado videos and things like that. I guess maybe it makes the risk seem more personal to me. You know, if you're seeing firsthand like houses that are destroyed, you're driving through them, you maybe see the person you know, or in my current line of work, I'm talking to them on the phone. I'm one of the first people they talk to after their home has been hit. It becomes a lot more of a personal thing. And um, definitely, you know, having worked in insurance too, you, you do learn um, just what these storms can do to people and how it can mess up their lives. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about the storm impact. So, you know, what can individuals and communities do to reduce their risk of severe weather? So I don't know if we can necessarily reduce our risk of receiving severe weather as far as like, because Mother Nature is going to be Mother Nature no matter what. But definitely there are things we can do to minimize the human impact and the structural impact. Um, one thing, when it comes to building buildings, um, I don't know if you know of Tim Marshall. He's a he's an engineer, but he also has a meteorology background, and he's done a lot of work developing standards for buildings and things like that based on storm damage. He has a saying that says, anchor it down or it's not around. 
And that kind of goes with, you know, like when homes are being constructed, builders just need to make sure that they're doing everything they're supposed to be doing. And not. I would say for people, definitely have a plan, what your severe weather plan, you know, know what you're going to do, especially if you're in a place that's, you know, impacted by hurricanes or tornadoes, you're going to want to know what your plan is going to be. You know, if you do live in a tornado impacted area, investing in a storm shelter, I mean, they have saved lives. And then obviously for from a city level, definitely plan, you know, an emergency response. Make sure you have good building codes in place that can minimize potential damage. You know, you don't want to make have your, your public buildings built in a way, um, you know, for example, if you're in a flood prone area, you might want to consider your elevations and stuff like that. Um, I know some places put their houses on stilts, things like that, you know, or flood zones with flooding. I guess be proactive about educating people about not driving into flooded water and think about building your infrastructure in a way, you know, maybe an area needs to have a bridge or if there is a flood prone area, just make sure it's really well signed. Maybe there's flashing lights or things like that. So people know not to drive into it. Those are just some things I can think of off the yeah. top of my head. Those are all great suggestions. I know South Florida implemented some much more strict building codes after Hurricane Andrew in 1992 from the hurricane risk. Do you know when you get into the heartland of the country, the Southern Plains there, places like North Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, do you know if there are like tornado or severe or, um, severe thunderstorm wind type of building codes that have been put into place? You know, that would be something I'd have to do a little bit more research on. I'm not sure exactly. But I do know there have been cases, like case studies that have been done, like why did this house survive and this house didn't? I know that those have been used to help develop building codes around the country. And I know, like I mentioned Tim Marshall, Marshall earlier, I know he's been, he, he worked with um, like a consulting engineering company. And I know that he kind of, um, he does a lot of those studies and he's kind of worked to help develop, you know, code and from an engineering standpoint, just helping come up with, uh, better buildings that are going to withstand wind better. That's fascinating. And, you know, I think this points to another valuable asset that storm chasers provide when they're out there capturing pictures and video or, or collecting wind data, things like that. I think the, the more data we have that can probably feed into those post-storm assessments to help us understand, okay, this building that withstood some damage, what were the wind speeds in this area? Um, my guess is having more chasers and more people out there collecting data probably helps us understand the science a little better. That, and then too, if you get someone who actually gets footage of the building being destroyed, you can see exactly how it came apart. And I think that too can help engineers piece together as to what can be done better. That's a really good insight there. So have you seen cases where professionals will look at videos of building failure to try to understand kind of what happened and where the point of weaknesses were? Yeah, I mean, I haven't done it myself, but I definitely know that there are people out there with engineering backgrounds who have done that, you know, or they'll go, they'll, um, like I know Tim, for example, he goes on some of the damage assessments, like when the National Weather Service goes out to determine the Fujita scale rating from a tornado, you know, they, they look at the damage to the buildings. It used to be that they would just, it didn't, the building was constructed. They just kind of had a set scale, but they've since changed it so that they look at how the building was constructed. So like if you have a mobile home that's completely wiped off its foundation, that might not be the same as like a brick building that's completely wiped off its foundation. They take that into account now when determining how strong the winds are. But I do believe that they look at footage of how something failed to determine what to do better for the future. 
That's interesting. And that's really interesting that they're considering the building quality and the design of the building when they're um, doing post-storm assessment. I didn't realize that, but that makes sense because I'd yeah. imagine um, different buildings that are constructed differently can handle winds at different velocities. Yeah. So the, originally we had what was called the Fujita scale. That was the one that Ted Fujita developed a while back. And then I want to say, can't remember exactly which year, but they changed it to the enhanced Fujita scale. And the enhanced Fujita scale, it's kind of the same principle, but now they're taking building construction. And they're actually in the process of making some amendments to it based on observations in the past 10, 15 years. Yeah, thanks for pointing that out. So the uh, enhanced Fujita scale, in a sense, it's it's almost similar to the Saffir-Simpson hurricane wind scale, right, for hurricanes, but this is the version to classify the intensity of tornadoes. Yeah, it's just done by damage done, as opposed to the Saffir-Simpson. I think with those, you know, they're able to drop sawns into the hurricane and stuff, so they're able to get a really good, accurate wind speed measure. For this, you know, it's kind of impossible to measure the wind speed, so that's why they have to go by building uh, building damage to kind of determine how destructive it was and kind of estimate the wind speeds. I see. They, they kind of reverse engineer it and say, okay, based on this amount of damage, this is what we think the wind, wind speeds were. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, Melissa, this is, you have a lot of great insights here that I think uh, all of our listeners are going to appreciate. I wanted to ask you one or two last questions. You know, you have this passion for weather and severe, severe storms. You've studied meteorology. You got out there doing a lot of storm chasing, but then you've also, you've allowed that to kind of carry you into uh, some work where you're, you know, working with insurance claims and things like that. What are the opportunities for people with an interest in meteorology or storm chasing to help after the storm with things like like insurance claims, litigation, or other disaster-related activities? I would say get licensed and become an adjuster. Uh, there's actually a few storm chasers out there who work as, an adju as adjusters. Basically, you're the one who's serving the damage at someone's house or property, and then um, you're helping them because you're going to be the one paying them to get their damage fixed. I find that it's very rewarding to be able to help someone like that. I know that some storm chasers have created video collaborations where they have sold video. Like, I don't see it as much these days because we've kind of gone away from DVDs. It used to be that they would put them on DVDs and then sell the DVDs, you know, or maybe I guess nowadays you pay to have access to the video and then that money goes to the Red Cross or something like that. Um, I know that people have done fundraisers and volunteer their time to go to a certain place. You know, like a lot of storm chasers you know, if they saw a tornado ripping through a town, some of them will come back and help with the cleanup. A lot of chasers, you know, they're chasing and they see a town get decimated. They call off their chase and some of them have first responder training. Those people will go to the houses and see if everybody's okay and first aid. And they're like the first person that the person sees right after the tornado hits the town. You know, that's a good point because they're already there on the ground. They were there when the storm hit. And then all of a sudden, if people are impacted, they could maybe respond even quicker than emergency management personnel. I'll give you an example. There was a tornado that crossed the Interstate 35 just south of Dallas, kind of near Waxahachie. And there were some storm chasers that saw the tornado cross the road and a couple of semi-trucks got knocked over and the drivers were trapped. There was a storm chaser who went and he held the hand of the driver for like 40 minutes until the emergency responders were able to get there. So that's just a practical example of a storm chaser who happened to be there helping a victim. 
Yeah, that's interesting. Do you, so have you, have you come across any situations where you, there's a storm approaching and you're interacting with non-chasers on the ground that are either confused about their risk or don't realize that, you know, they're in the crosshairs or ha have you come across times where people ask you like, what's the storm going to do? Do I need to get underground? Have you had interactions like that? Yeah, I actually, back in April, I was pulled off the side of the road watching a tornado and a, a husband and a wife pulled up next to me and he asked me, he said he could see it. And he's like, he asked me which way it was moving and what to do. And I said, well, you know, it could cross the road. You have a visual on it. Just slow down and make sure you don't drive into it, basically. So I just basically told him to hang back and not drive too close to it. Yeah, Melissa, I have one more off-the-cuff question that I just thought of. I have a really close friend of mine that grew up in southwest Missouri, and his perception, he doesn't really have a, a professional experience in meteorology, but his perception is that he's heard tornado sirens his whole life and nothing ever happens. And so he has this perception that the warning area is often, you know, there's frequently a warning over a, a fairly large geographic area, and it's just kind of desensitized him and other people in his family and friends. Do you see ways that warnings are becoming more... Uh, targeted either through like smartphone or like through uh, improved mapping science? Um, I think absolutely we're seeing that happen. Um, I actually saw a warning one day that was tiny and the reason it's becoming we're be getting better and better at it is because we have better radar technology. You know we have the Doppler, we have the dual pole. We can see better if a tornado is in progress as opposed to you know before it was harder to see on radar and you know and, and also we have better we have better model like atmospheric modeling than we used to so that helps make better forecasts to begin with but when storms are ongoing i would say warnings are just getting better because we have much better radar technology and they're able to be more specific you can see exactly where the tornadoes occurring on the radar um, and also because we have more chasers more people on the ground more spotters if there is a storm that historically was not producing a tornado and then it decides to put down a tornado someone's going to call that into the national weather service right away that's and right and we in, in the smartphone age too, we have right we have more opportunity probably to report yeah. things in from the field and stuff um, yeah so it's uh, easier to report something so usually you know there's someone it's rare these days that a tornado goes unseen you know unless it's like a nighttime tornado in the middle of the boonies but like usually there's at least one or two people that are on a particular storm and they have a visual of what's going on and that certainly helps too. But you know, sometimes there are warnings where, um, you know, the circulation in the storm, the storm clearly has enough circulation that um, we can tell that it is very capable of putting down a tornado. But again, mother nature can surprise us. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. That's something we're still trying to pinpoint is exactly what causes some storms that look identical on radars, on radar to put down tornadoes versus others that don't. If the storm has rotation and it's tight enough to look like it could put down a tornado, the weather service will warn it just to be safe, to give people more leeway in case it does produce a tornado. One thing they have started doing in the warnings is they will indicate whether it's a radar indicated warning based on what they see on the radar or if someone actually sees a tornado in progress. I see. So, so they'll make a distinction if this has actually been seen on the ground yes. or it's just radar indicated. Yes, exactly. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And like you said, too, when you picture, say, 20 years ago, people actually needed to have a specific video camera in their possession to video these things. Now, with smartphones, there's millions of video cameras out there all the time recording this stuff. Very last question for you. How has your meteorology experience helped your career as an insurance adjuster, you know, just dealing with these things after the storm? Well, it definitely helps me determine whether something is truly storm damage. There are situations where people put in claims and it damage, or it may be, and I have to pull the trigger on that and make a decision. You know, I'm able to quickly pull a storm report because I know exactly where to get it from. Um, it also helps um, to anticipate claim volume. You know, if I am looking at the forecast and I see that, you know, I'm looking at the, the, the models and I see that a certain area looks like it's gonna be impacted by severe weather, you know, that can be an opportunity for adjusters to you know, just prepare, say, okay, we're probably going to get a lot of claims in this area. Sometimes that can involve calling the agents just to make them aware that their customers might be impacted. It can also help with resources. You know, some companies will mobilize field adjusters to go to certain places and it can help them plan. So having a knowledge of the weather, you know, just helps things move more efficiently. Obviously, we're not going to be able to control whether or not the claims come in because that's mother nature, but um, it can definitely help us know where we need our resources and our people. Yeah, it sounds like that experience that you've had in your education and field work doing storm chasing as well, uh, it kind of helps you anticipate where storms may have big impacts and then it helps you afterwards as far as verifying the claims and just kind of processing things as well. Melissa, really appreciate you coming on GeoTrack. Your insights here were amazing. It makes me want to get out there and do some severe weather chasing as well uh, with you and some of your teams out there. It seems like y'all have learned a lot and I'm encouraged to hear how the science is improving and as well how warnings and things like that are improving as well. That's another thing that I really learned from our discussion here today. For sure. And that would be awesome if you some tornadoes. I think you would enjoy it and learn a lot from it too. Wow, what an amazing episode of GeoTrek we had today. We had a special guest, Melissa Moon, who's a storm chaser, meteorologist, and insurance adjuster. We talked about how she became interested in severe weather as a four-year-old girl. We talked about insights into storm chasing, advances in the forecasting of severe weather, how field observations can inform forensic meteorology after the storm, and some encouraging stories about how storm chasers have stepped in to help out with emergency response and post-storm assessments. To our loyal GeoTrek listeners, please keep exploring your world. Although road trips and plane travel are a blast, some of the most amazing things we'll see in nature happen right in our communities. On behalf of the GeoTrek production team, I'm Dr. Hurricane Hal Needham, signing off from the resilient U.S. Gulf Coast. See you next episode of GeoTrack.